big decisions, paths followed, choices made. This is Connections, conversations about life and work. I'm your host, Jim Allen. I'm with the freshly retired Mark Roberti. You'll always be the founder of RFID Journal, but now you're the former editor of RFID Journal. Say it ain't so. It is so, yes. Welcome. Thank you, Jim. Good to be here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start off with a couple of true false questions, just so because some people know who you are, some people don't know who you are. So true or false? Who doesn't know who I am? I, a lot of people. <laughs> Half the people watching this. So true or false? You invented RFID technology. False. Okay, so that's a no. So I got it right. No. Um, True or false, you coined the phrase Internet of Things. False. So also a no. Yes, that so was the, uh, coined by Kevin Ashton. So, so, so this is off to a slow start. So like I, I got two no's, yeah. so I'm wildly misinformed right off the start. So a lot of these people watching this will know who you are because they, you know, they're attracted to the RFID hashtag. Uh, for those of uh, for those of you uh, watching uh, this, uh, I'll introduce Mark a little bit. So before RFID Journal, you were a technology writer. Uh, for a few years, you worked in Asia. So tell me about that. Well, um, so I grew up on Long Island in New York, um, and I uh, actually was dating a, an Asian woman, and I worked in a Chinese restaurant, and I learned how to speak Chinese. I could write all the dishes in Chinese. Uh, so I would take the order in Chinese and give it to the Chinese chef so he could read it. And uh, after I graduated with a degree in English literature, I decided that uh, I would go to Asia and go to Hong Kong and try to learn uh, to be fluent in, in Chinese and Cantonese specifically. Uh, so I, I left uh, everybody I knew and uh, I moved to the other side of the world. Um, I got a job teaching, and I taught in Hong Kong for a little while, where I met my wife, who was a teacher, and uh, and then I got into journalism. I was writing about business because Hong Kong was a business center of the you know of, the, of East Asia, and and the, at the time, Taiwan, uh, Singapore, Korea, and Hong Kong were known as the Four Tigers, and they were doing great. And so I wrote all about business. Came back to the U.S. and. Um, I was, uh, my first job was actually in a, as a travel trade editor in a travel trade publication, um, which was just kind of to get a job and get a paycheck when I came back to the United States. And I went to a conference in Vancouver, and I volunteered to go to this conference because my friend John Hull lived in Vancouver at the time, and I wanted to go visit him. So I said, I'll go to that technology conference. And they were talking about this new thing called the internet. Now, this was in 1991. And um, I listened to the speeches, and I was blown away by this this internet thing. And so I switched from being a, a fo focused on on business to be focused on technology after I heard about the internet. So uh, that's when I started to write about uh, about technology. And and somewhere along the line, you you stumbled over this RFID thing, right? Yeah. So so when I learned about the internet, I came back from this conference and I was telling everybody about this thing called the internet and people were saying, you know, Mark, this is really boring. Shut up. This is, you know, we don't want to hear about this anymore. Um, but then when I heard about, uh, RFID in, uh, nine, uh, sorry, 2000, I was, um, 
I was at a conference again, and somebody mentioned this thing called RFID to me. It sounded really intriguing, and I had the same feeling I had when I heard about the internet. So I got really excited. Um, the the pu publication I was working for at the time, the Industry Standard, which was the the dot com bible, it went bankrupt, and uh, I was out of work. So I had done a lot of interviews for a story about RFID, and 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 uh, so I started posting stuff online, and people started visiting. And uh, so I formed a company and started RFID Journal. So why did you move back to the States, though? Just uh, um, family reasons? Yeah. Family? You know, Hong Kong's a very difficult place to raise a family. Your apartments are really small. There's not a lot of space. So my wife and I thought it would be a better place to, uh, raise, a family. to raise a family. Right. And then, so you started this website, RFID Journal, like b basically from your kitchen table. Right? Uh, it was, so I had a spare bedroom. Spare bedroom. Uh, I bought a book on how to write HTML code. Right. I bought a hosting package, $9.99 a month for a hosting. Right. And um, John Hull designed my logo and uh, started posting stuff and coding everything myself. My startup <laughs> capital was $500. Right. So I believe I did one of the first RFID videos. I'm going to insert myself into your story here. Um, when the aforementioned... That, that's when it started to take off. I, when I got involved. Yeah. When the aforementioned Kevin Ashton, then of the Auto ID Center at MIT, needed someone to record very early demos of RFID. He contacted you. Do you know anyone that... Does? Well, there's this guy that lives next door to... This is the third mention of John Hull in this video. He'll be happy. Uh, I was his next door neighbor. Um, and so off to Boston and MIT I went... And this is 2002, mm -hmm. I think. So somewhere along the way, not only did you find out about RFID, but someone whispered to you, trade shows. So why trade shows? Well, um, so that's sort of an interesting story. I had uh, two, two people I worked with in the technology uh, journals that I was. I was with Information Week for, for a few years. And I had a colleague, um, Charles Pelton, and another colleague, John Eckhouse. And John and I left Information Week the same week without knowing it and went to the same publication, the Industry Standard. John was on the events side, and I was on the, uh, I was on the editorial side writing stories. And John knew that I could speak publicly, so he invited me to speak at some of the Industry Standard publications. Then... Uh, he wound up leaving and working with Charles Pelton, who started his own company. And they said, well, why don't we collaborate on an event? And I said, I think that's a great idea. So uh, early on, I mean, it was 2002 that I launched the company and 2003 that we ran, we ran our first event in Chicago. So the first video I did for you was 2003. So I'm going to test your memory here. So you were staging your first RFID live in Chicago. How many attendees? Probably 200, 300? We had 300 attendees at that time. So pretty good, but humble beginnings. Yeah, humble we, beginnings. Had, we had like 10 or 11 tabletops. Now, as I recall, your, your keynote speaker couldn't make it. So I flew to Boston so you could interview the executive from Gillette, Dick Cantwell, yeah. who I had already interviewed for that previous video. So he was one of the first corporate champions of RFID. Correct. And I remember it fondly because it was during SARS. Toronto was a hotbed of SARS. So I flew to Boston, empty plane, because no one. 
and I would, and I had a coughing fit during, like just right now, like during the during the interview. And I remember this, seeing the blood drain from both of your faces as I, so as I was trying to <clears throat> shoot it. So that was fun. So, but a keynote speaker canceling is one of many crises you probably faced over over the years, no doubt, right? Correct. I mean, it was hard. It was hard. And you built it up from from scratch. And what I you scaled up pretty quickly. What I didn't realize until much, much later is that you had investors at the beginning. Is that correct? No. So what, what happened was um, uh, I started the company. I was the sole proprietor. And um, as the company was growing, I, you know, I had no resources. I had no accounting person. So I went to look for an accounting firm, and I, I met this guy, Les Suffren, who focused on media properties doing accounting for media. And I forget who recommended me. And so uh, this was 2005, companies starting to grow. And uh, less, for reasons that I don't really fully understand, said, hey, uh, you know, I know some investors that would be interested in talking to you. Would you be interested in talking to them? And I said, yeah, why not? So he dials up the phone and uh, he, he calls somebody up. I, I won't use anybody's name because I don't know how much they want their names to be out there. But uh, the, he calls this guy at Boston Ventures, which is a big firm in, in Boston, and says, uh, hey, I got this guy here. He's got a great cash flow business. Things are going really well. I think you might want to talk to him. So this guy flies down from Boston a couple of days later and we have lunch together. And, and, and he says, well, look, I... I can't invest in you because you're too small. Boston Ventures can't. But I'm interested in doing angel investing, and I have a bunch of friends who I think would, would be willing to do that. Are you interested in investors? And I said, well, I said, really, I don't need the money. I'm doing fine. You know, we're, we're self-funding. And he said, well, you know, that may be true, but you may want advice. You may want, you know, feedback from people. It may help. And I thought about it, and um, I made the decision that I would I would sell a small piece of the company to these guys. Um, and they're all bigwigs. I mean, they're, they're guys who know media businesses. Um, you know, they've run big, some of them ran big media companies. And what year is this? This is 2005. Okay. So I sold 20% of the business at the time. Okay. And uh, they were passive investors. I mean, the last 10 years, I didn't even talk to them, right. to be honest. You know, I mean, I would send them, you know, a yearly update. Hey, here's how we did this year. But they never called me and said, hey, I think you should be, you know, doing X or Y or Z. Uh, they just let me kind of run the business as, as I saw fit. So the first RFID journal live th uh, that I actually went to was at the MGM Grand Hotel in Las Vegas in 2006. Yeah. So I got there as the event was already underway. And I was surprised to encounter about 3,000 attendees. So you grew pretty quickly, yep. and and that's sort of where you where you landed in terms of attendance over the years. Sort of, we kind of plateaued plateaued around three thousand. Yeah, yeah. So it was two thousand, twenty five hundred, various reasons, but which we can get to. But you know, thirty five hundred. I think I remember one year. Um, so back then in two thousand and six, did you have visions or ambitions of of growing it to? To five or ten thousand attendees every year, or was that never really in the cards? Uh, that was absolutely my goal, and uh, frankly, it was my expectation that that would happen. 
Um, I think that everybody in the industry thought that RFID would take off faster than it did. Um, and, you know, to this day, it's still a technology that is, you know, widely used, but only by a small minority of companies in any meaningful way. So it's still fairly niche um, and has not yet kind of hit a tipping point where it's exploded and used everywhere. So, I mean, I went to that show, I didn't know what to expect, but um, there were, there was, there was a big keynote session, at least a thousand people. There was uh, simultaneous breakout sessions, maybe up to eight, all happening, happening simultaneously. And this is all day long for two or three days. There was also um, um, an exhibit hall full of booths and vendors. So for me, it was a crash course on, on how trade shows uh, were put together. And I was, basically I was doing promotional videos for you and I was interviewing people and I didn't, you know, I'm just encountering people in the hall. And I don't know, I, I didn't know the difference between attendees and vendors, sponsors, and speakers uh, when I first went, uh, just to be honest. It probably took me a couple of years to figure it out. But the you, truth you is- You uh, could have asked me, Jim. Well, the truth, well, you were busy <laughs> and a little standoffish, frankly. And uh, Really? And, and, but, the, but the person I was interviewing could have been all of those things. True. Because as, as, as you know, you could be in the audience- and then five years later, later, be a keynote speaker and bring your case studies. Even less than five years. So we had some guys from GM speak, and they showed a picture of them two years before sitting in the audience. Yes. They act because our photographer yes. actually took a picture of them, and they saw the picture on our website and and took a screenshot of it and showed it in their presentation. Yes. Here's us two years ago in yes. the audience, knowing nothing, yeah. and then two years later, yeah. sharing uh, info as an. So it was a uniquely collaborative experience, really, because. You could be in a booth and then rush to the key, you know, watch a keynote, and then also go to some of these breakout sessions because everyone was kind of learning from each other. It was right. kind of a uniquely collaborative yeah. atmosphere, really. Especially in the early days, it was a very you know there was a strong sense of community, and I think you know in the early days, we all felt we were changing the world. That right. that you know this technology was going to revolutionize su supply chains. And and you know we were doing this, um, so speakers and exhibitors and you know we all knew each other. And then as it got bigger, you know that sense of community kind of got lost a little bit. Um, but it, it was very collaborative, still is. Uh, you know people move from working for a vendor to working for a retailer or working for a retailer to going to a supplier. You know it's 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 a very uh, fluid community. And again, back to 2006, uh, 2007, and I mean, it seemed like the sky sky was the limit, really. Mm -hmm. But then it got difficult, didn't it? Because the economy uh, always is, was always a factor, right? Well, 2008, we had the financial collapse, and and frankly, our company came within a whisper of going out of business at that time because um, the way the nature of the trade show business is, in order to get that space in the convention center, you have to guarantee the hotels in the area a certain number of rooms. Uh, and so we we were at the Swan and Dolphin that year, uh, 2009, and the, the world economy was going through the floor. People weren't traveling. And I was, and hotel prices had gone, you know, to nothing. 
So we had we had contracted with the Swan and Dolphin for something like two fifty nine a night. So Orlando, right? Yeah. yeah, in Orlando, and people were not, people were registering for the event, but they weren't registering the hotel. So we started calling them, saying, "What? Well, well, you need to book your hotel." And they're like, "Oh no, I got a room at the Hilton for for a hundred bucks, so I'm not staying at the event hotel." So we were faced with we were going to owe the hotel a million dollars, a little bit over a million dollars, if everybody stayed in the Hilton. It's no longer in your living room, this company. Yeah, so so I called the GM of the hotel and I said, look, um, I know you think you know you have a contract and we're going to give you this million du- bucks, but frankly, we don't have a million dollars in cash right. sitting around and we're going to go out of business. You're not going to get your money, so we got to do something. And he worked with us to say that if we could move someone from the Hilton, he would match the $100 rate instead of charging two, two, right. 259 and uh, my sister and another woman, uh, Debbie, uh, called up all the people who had registered and asked them to move. Some did, some didn't, but we wound up filling the hotel block. Right. And we didn't know that we didn't know them anything at the end of the day. So, uh, but, oh, but it was uh, it was the worst experience of my life that year was trying to keep the company going. Well, I remember being at one of your events in two thousand and eight. It was right, and and uh, I don't want to city drop but it was in prague and that like obama got elected so it's very memorable like you wake up and he's giving he's giving an acceptance speech because of the time difference but i remember i mean the 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 stock market had already i mean the economy had already crashed at that point and i remember very clearly everyone's looking around the stock market just dropped 25 percent like what's what what's what's the future going to be like and i know you know the stock market's not the economy but so i mean especially during down economic times it must have been a slog for you i mean the next couple of years would have been a slog i mean yeah so so we you know what companies do when there's a recession or when there's uncertainty is they tend to cut any um projects that are you know futuristic projects. So RFID right. was something, hey, we you know, we think it would be some value. Let's let's do something and see if it, if it's useful. Well, financial collapse happened, those projects all got killed. Right. So, um so that meant vendors lost money, a couple of vendors went out of business. Um it had a huge impact on us. Our revenue uh, in 2009 dropped 25% from 2008. Right. And our healthcare costs coincidentally went up like 40%. Uh, because people were 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 abandoning, you know, getting rid of their health care to save money, and some people were being on, you know, right. they were unemployed. So the healthcare companies need some way to make up the revenue, so they increase the prices of everybody else. Right. Um, so so we were in dire financial straits at that point. We cut everybody's salary. I didn't take salary for a couple of years, um, and you just did everything we could to survive. We cut. Every, my, my sister was my accountant, and she went through the books, and she cut every possible expense we could cut. And, you know, in some ways, as, as horrible as it was, I think that's when I started to learn how to be a CEO and to really run a company and focus on the costs. And, you know, at that point— Just the hard decisions, you Just mean? making the hard decisions, but getting down in the weeds and really understanding. Because when you're making enough money, you're like, yeah, yeah, okay, uh, the, 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 the AV guy wants 200000 give it to him. You know, we, right. we, we, we can cover that, you know. Right. But then when you're, you know, you don't have the revenue, you're like, okay, let's look at the AV budget really carefully. We don't need this. We don't need that. Right. We don't need this. And you start becoming much more, you know, much more hands-on. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, remember the— 
somebody just posted the tag man uh, thing. And I did a, a video for you, like an opening video, and it was a three-screen thing, you'll recall. I did, yeah. Tag man. That was the tag man year. And uh, so I'm, 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 I'm standing at the back like a, with a camera, and maybe – I think John was near me, actually. And then uh, – I mean, no one knows that I had anything to do with that video, really, other than I'm holding a video camera, right? So – but one one of the attendees comes up to me, goes, "We don't need flashy videos like this," and walks away. It's like, like you know, he they appreciated the austere. I guess that maybe they're thinking, if you're not spending, if you don't spend a lot uh, on frills, which you know, an opening video is kind of a frill, uh, maybe it's it's cheaper for him as well. So it was just, I guess, funny how. how well, it, well, one interesting thing about that, and I've always tried to explain this to our 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 marketing people and the people at my former company that I sold to, um, our audience is, it's not a boondoggle. Like a lot of events yeah. are boondoggles, right? Yeah, yeah, we're going out to that conference out in uh, Vegas, you know, and, and people go and they, they attend a couple of sessions like and then they- Reward out. and recognition right. for That's, the sales force. And... Our audience is not like that at all. Most of our people are executives who have a full-time job running a supply chain or, or running retail stores, and they're asked to to, to do RFID in addition to their regular job. So they're spending their time and they're busy and they want to get in, they want to learn what they want to learn and they want to get out. And, and we, you know, we didn't spend a ton of money on, on frills and we, we tried to make the show, you know, straightforward, come learn and, and get what you want and, and, and get out. And then Walmart was an early adapter. Adopter. Adopter. Yeah. And then they weren't. Right. Yeah, so I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's yeah. a lot of obstacles that you were, we were. I mean, the, Walmart back then was huge. I mean, you, you don't even think of them in the same way anymore because of Amazon and things. But, but you never, but you didn't quit, right? So what, what kept you going? There was a lot of, a lot of stupidity. Boof, <laughs> <laughs> just sheer, sheer, boom, you know. Boneheadedness. Uh, it's like no, officer and a gentleman. I got, I got nowhere else to go. Yeah, it's exactly. Got, like, what else am I gonna do? Well, you know, to be honest, there, there were times where I, I kind of felt trapped, and you know, you have uh, a staff and you have salaries and you got to pay those salaries, and you're not making enough profits to really sell the company and 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 you know get out and get something for it. And you know, it's like, what do you do? So you felt responsible to the people. I, I did, and staff. and I certainly did. I felt a huge responsibility. Um, but I, I, there was no easy like, oh, here's an exit strategy. You know that you, you know, when when things are going well, you know, you can sell and you can you can exit. When things are not going so well, you can't even do that. So right. you're kind of stuck. Like this is the only thing I can do. I, I, I mean, I can't just go get another job and fold up the company and right. lay everybody off. Um, but I always believed, and I always ran. You know, and 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 looking back, I, I probably should have run the company different. But the way I ran the company was, eventually, this technology is going to take off. I'll be able to sell at that time, and I'll be able to retire. And the technology never took off. So I was investing in educating people. And I, I've made, you know, I've said this publicly before. We were putting a million dollars a year 
into the editorial quality of the of the events, hiring speakers, getting speakers to the events, hiring staff to go recruit the speakers, uh, but also the 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 writing of the stories, the editing of the stories, the posting of the stories. We were investing a million dollars a year. Wow! And all of the money from the event, all of it, hundred percent, was going back into the editorial quality. Now, if if it had worked out the way I'd hoped, I would have been brilliant because all of that education would get the market moving and that would grow our, our show and grow our, our business and then we'd sell and you know I'd be golden. But it didn't happen that way. We were investing all that money and the industry really wasn't growing and really wasn't growing and wasn't, really wasn't growing. It was kind of plateaued. Eventually it will take off. Um, but in the meantime, I'm just getting salary. I'm not taking any money out of the business. Now, if I could do it over again, what I'd probably do is say, instead of a million, I'm gonna spend 800,000 and I'm gonna take 200,000 for myself and put it in a retirement fund. Right. I didn't do that. Um, and, and it was because I had this absolute conviction that the technology would eventually take off and will become commonplace and the show will be much, much bigger at that time. I still believe that. Um, but the reason I sold is because the reason I sold the company was because having had this strategy for, for 15 years, I, my family was at risk. I didn't have a big, you know, I had put all this time and effort and, you know, I worked 70, 80 hours a week, many, many weeks. Um, I didn't have this big nest egg that I was, you know, taking money out and put it on the side. So, you know, something happened to me. My wife had, you know, the money I'd saved from my salary and this company would have been worthless, and that had been it. So I figured that I needed to do something to safeguard my my family's future, at yeah. least get something out of it. Uh, and you kind of self-identify as a journalist, right? And, Absolutely. And and but you're also definitely you've just shown it. You're a bit of a a cheerleader. You pr you were trying to promote the technology, the industry. Is there a conflict there at all? You be, you being a journalist and you. Promoting the industry. Um, no, I don't think there is because I never saw myself as a cheerleader. What I saw myself as is somebody who is educating people about the technology, including what it doesn't do. And I have never promoted the technology or never encouraged someone to use the technology when I thought it wasn't going to help their business. So I've told many people, look, you don't need RFID for that. You could use barcodes. That barcodes will work fine. Don't, don't, don't use RFID. Um, because what's the point of telling them to use it when they don't need it? So I, I saw myself as an educator. Uh, and, and as an educator, if you believe the thing that you're educating people about is great, then you have to tell them it's really great. I mean, RFID is really, really powerful technology. I believe it, 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 is, um, it is absolutely game-changing technology in, in, many, in many applications. Um, so to not say that, to believe that and, and not say that um, would not be educating accurately in my view. So, so I didn't see it as a conflict. Uh, no, but I if went, you want, we could argue about that. We I, get, I, I went, well, I went to about 20 events that you produced. Um, so Las Vegas, Orlando, San Diego, Chicago, Toronto, Prague, Amsterdam. I know you went to Brazil several times. London. Colombia. Middle East, Central du America. Dubai. Australia. Groundbreaking in, in a lot of ways. Internationally, 
which which ones gave which one maybe gave you the most satisfaction um i can't say you know it was it was one more than another um i i saw them all as as being important and uh you know, it is a global technology. Um, I'm proud of the fact that RFID Journal was a global brand. Uh, I, I talked to people from, you know, all countries all over. In our database, we had uh, folks from 212 countries and territories uh, around the world. So that always, more than anything else, I, I, I felt very proud of that, you know, people would, would from, from all over the world, relied on us. And, 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 and the brand was respected globally. I think, you know, obviously I'm not, you know, we're not Coca-Cola. I'm not suggesting that at all. What I'm saying is in our niche, you know, we were a, a, a global, well-respected brand. I mean, you, you were really, really trying to get the word out. Um, did you accomplish what you wanted to accomplish, do you think? No. I don't think I, uh, my goal had always been from day one to get to the point where RFID was, was used, you know, in almost all large companies. And uh, it's taken a lot longer. And, you know, I've kind of run out of the energy needed to, to keep, keep doing that education. So I feel like I, I didn't get there. Uh, but I also feel that RFID Journal, um, made the industry as big as it is today. I think if, it, if, the industry, if we hadn't existed, uh, I think there would have been others that would have filled the role, but they never would have invested a million dollars a year in education. They would have posted press releases, and, the in, and press releases don't have the same impact as interviewing people. Or, you know, if you have events and you, and you have a, 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 a consultant speak, um, that may be educational, may be valuable, but it's not the same as having, you know, we had speakers from Walmart and Procter and Gamble and, and, you know, all, you know, all, all companies coming and saying, this is the benefit that, that we got. Um, and that gave the technology credibility and people in the audience could say, oh, that's a company like mine. We can get that benefit too. Whereas if you're just out there pitching, 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 uh, I don't think it would have been adopted as much as it has been. The trade show part of your career has been, it's a 20 year ride, right? Knowing now what you do, uh, what, what you know now, any advice to anyone out there who, uh, who may be watching and thinking about starting a trade show, what, uh, anything you could say? I mean, a hybrid, maybe hybrid might be the future. Hybrid on, events. On, online, offline. Yeah. Um, I think it's the online, offline thing is very challenging. Uh, we tried a few different options during covid um didn't really find anything that was successful you know i've seen these things where you have uh speakers and then people go off into a trade show area uh haven't seen that work it hasn't yeah. worked for us um i i think the number one thing that i always felt was give people a lot of value so have great speakers put in the time and effort to to get great great speakers look right. it's easy one of the challenges we always faced is there were competitors out there who would say, look, buy a booth and we'll give you a speaking slot. And then they would come to us and we would say, buy a booth. And they'd say, can I speak? And we'd say, no. And they would say, why not? And I said, well, we get end users, you know, your customer can come and speak uh, if you have a customer that's willing to do that because the, the attendee wants to hear the customer. They want to hear the user, the company like them. They don't want to hear you pitch them. 
And it was always a struggle because a lot of people would just like to speak. You know, I want to go up there and speak. So, so they would go to other shows and not, not do our show. Um, but I felt, I always stuck to my guns. I felt that the attendee wants value and, and value is hearing educational, objective educational information from someone who's not selling them something. So eventually you sold. What is it, about four years ago now? You sold the company? Five and a half, Five actually. and a half already. Yeah. Time flies. So you sold the company to Emerald Expositions, who produced several trade shows. They're the third largest uh, trade show producer in the U.S. What I didn't realize until that happened because uh, is that you had, the way you put it at the time, you had angel investors since the beginning, and they... They needed to be repaid at at some point, but yep. you but you stayed with it, so you and you were probably contractually for another couple of years. Two anyway. years, two years. So, but you stayed with it, and then um, and then uh, I you know people are probably sick of talking about the pandemic, but you had to cancel what a show and a half or yeah, uh, and you finally got the the event back on its feet. But I suspect it'll take some time to get back to the numbers that you enjoyed. Previously, I mean, was that part of the decision to retire, like yet another mountain to climb? To, to some degree, yes. Um, and I think that, um, you know, when you're part of a larger corporation, the corporation has different priorities or, you know, they've got to decide where they're going to put the resources. So you don't have full control over um, how you how you, how much resources you have and how you're going to deploy them. So I just felt that, um, you know, I could work really hard and, and again, go back to working 70, 80 hours a week and get it back to where it was. Um, but, but, but frankly, um, it's not even in my financial interest anymore. I'd be doing it on behalf of the corporation. And so why do I want to go work right. 70, 80 hours a week right. again? Um, you know, in, in all honesty, and I, I know people think I'm exaggerating when I say this, but I didn't take a day off in 10 years. Right. And I don't mean like I didn't take a Friday or a Thursday off. I mean, I didn't take any days so off. So Christmas, New Year's. I worked Christmas, New Year's, Easter. I mean, not a full day. I, I worked four or five hours on right. Christmas Day. I worked four or five hours on News Day. Uh, but on, on, I worked 12, 15 hours a day on Monday through Friday. And then I would work you know, 10 hours on Saturday and Sunday. And so you sacrifice a lot. You, you don't, you're not with your family. My, my kids and my wife went on vacation without me. Uh, my wife would take the kids to Hong Kong where her family's from, and I wouldn't go because I couldn't spend, you know, all that time away. Uh, and so you, you feel like at some point you, you want to have a life back and you want to spend time with your, your, your wife and your kids while you still can. And, and so uh, those, were, those were big considerations for me. So it was like the Beatles breaking up. It was, it was time. It was just time. I, I think it was time, and I think the industry is at a point where, um, you know, the ball's rolling, and, and I think it'll continue to roll, and, and eventually it'll hit critical mass. And, and, and you're still kind of around, uh, but and you still want people to go to the show, right? Absolutely. You still want people to go? I believe, and, and not everyone thinks this way, but, you know, everybody thinks that, oh, you can just Google something and you can go get an RFID company. I don't believe that. I think trade shows are really important. You get to meet people face to face. You get to take take measure of them, and uh, and that's that's really an important thing. Plus, you get to meet you know people that you you might not find on the internet, or or if you did find them, you might not pay attention to them. 
Um, so I, I think trade shows are really important. And I think uh, having high quality, a high quality news site like RFID Journal is also really important, especially to a, a developing industry. You know, if you're if the industry is already mature, um, everybody knows what's going on, then the news is, and, and the information is not as, as valuable. But with RFID, I think it's absolutely critical. So, I mean, you're, you're retired, blah, blah, blah. I've heard that all before. But, uh, I mean, you're a free agent. I mean, you're perfectly positioned to be a consultant, whatever you want to call it, because you know, you literally know wherever all the bodies are buried, right? I mean, it's, you know, someone could call you and, oh, uh, there's this guy that used to work at Airbus. He's not there anymore. He's over here, but I've got his direct number. Let me call him. I'll tell him that you're calling. And then you call them, and I mean, that is that's worth something, right? Because you know what, you literally know everyone. So uh, if you're new to the industry, you'd be a good guy to talk to, right? Yes, and 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 um, I I have played that role for many years informally. So people would write to me, and they would say, you know, we want to do this. Is there anybody else who's done it? You know, and I would put people in touch with each other. I would recommend vendors to see. I would recommend consultants to hire to do the you know more in depth stuff. Um, but I I think there's a role, uh, a demand. I think, and I, I, I we'll we'll see as as I as I you know start to market my services a little bit or, or you know I think there's a demand for for how, how do I deploy this technology in a strategic way. Not just, you know, how do I track my, you know, my parts bins, but how do I deploy the technology in a way that's going to uh, reduce my costs and improve my competitive advantage? How does it integrate with AI? How does it integrate with video uh, analytics? Uh, how does it integrate with big data? What, what, you know, what should we be thinking about? I've spent my whole, you know, the last 20 years of my life thinking about this stuff, writing about this stuff. Um, so I think I can help companies save a lot of time because because the reality is when you talk to companies that have done RFID, they tell you that, you know, we had a lot of false starts. We were going in this direction. Then we realized, no, that's not the right direction. Then we go in this direction. I've seen who do, who's done it right. I've seen all the mistakes people have made. Uh, I think I can help you get on the right track very quickly and, and have a successful deployment. So you might do that or you haven't decided yet or? Um, uh, there's things in the air. So there's a bunch of, you know, obviously when, when you retire or you announce you're leaving, people contact you. And so, you know, there's a couple of things floating around. Uh, but I think that probably I will, I will launch a, you know, a consulting business and see if there's a demand for this. Um, I don't plan to work full time anymore. I want to spend some time with my wife. I want to travel and go to places that uh, I haven't gotten to. And, um, and we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Perfect time to, uh, to end this. So thanks, Mark, for doing this. Appreciate it. Jim, thanks so much. It's great to see you again. And I uh, really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. If you have a comment or if you want to be on the show, send me an email at connectionsvideopod at gmail.com. And please subscribe.